you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19, and we're going to read chapters 19 through 20 today, and uh, consider encountering the God who speaks. So, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people uh, to the Lord, The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him But he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. In other words, abstain from marital relations. Verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the front of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, 
Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or He will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not leave leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, that's a tongue twister, by the way, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. You shall make me an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stone for me, You shall not build it of cut stones, for if you would wield your tool on it, you would profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, so that your nakedness will not be exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why are you here today? I suppose there's a variety of reasons that people would come to church building on Sunday morning. So, why have you come? Maybe for some, you come out of a sense of duty or tradition. It's just where you should be on Sunday. Uh, Maybe some of you came to socialize with your friends. Maybe some of you came because you had nothing better to do today. 
or you were just curious about what goes on in this building on Sunday mornings. And I suppose perhaps that some of you came because you have come to discover that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, when we gather for worship, we come to encounter a God who speaks. We come to celebrate the glory and the power of this God and to hear what it is that He has to say. And as we proclaim the Word that He has inspired for us, He has inspired it inerrantly, infallibly, and authoritatively in the Bible, then we have the confident assurance that we are hearing God speak. As I have traveled the world, I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of temples and shrines and and, uh, and see altars of other belief systems. And, and in many of them, there are many gods on display. Some of them are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and stone. But all of them, no matter where I go, they all have one thing in common. They are silent. They can be seen, but they cannot be heard. They cannot speak. The God whom we worship and serve is entirely different because He is not seen. He's not visible. His presence is not represented by any tangible object. But His voice is clearly heard as He speaks through His Word. Now in our text we've just read, the nation of Israel has come to the wilderness of Sinai, to the base of the great mountain. Seven weeks have elapsed since they left Egypt and Here at this mountain, God is going to do for them something that He had never done for any other people to that point in the history of the world. He is going to speak to the nation. From atop the mountain, covered with smoke from the fire of His presence, surrounded by darkness and flashes of lightning, God would reveal Himself and His will to Israel by His Word. Now, we must never lose sight of or take for granted the unprecedented, unparalleled mercy of God that He has shown to us in speaking. We can know who He is. We can know what it is that He wants us to do because He has spoken by His Word. So, what we are coming to do every Sunday morning, and indeed, what we do every time we open our Bibles, wherever we are, is not altogether different from the encounter that Israel had at Sinai. We are coming to encounter the God who speaks. And so, I want us to consider from this text three realities about encountering this God who speaks. First, we see in chapter 19, and that is this. If we would encounter... The God who speaks, there must be careful preparation. Think about how you prepare for Sunday worship. Uh, Maybe it starts for you when your alarm clock goes off. Uh, Maybe it starts for you the night before as you set your coffee maker to come on at a certain hour. The shower, the shaving, the picking out your clothing and so on. All good things. By the way, we're glad you do all those things and don't want you to stop doing any of them. Uh, But... Preparation for worship, preparation for encountering God begins long before the alarm clock rings on Sunday morning. And we see how important that preparation for encountering God is as a full chapter here is devoted to the subject. Notice that first and foremost, chapter 19 tells us there must be a relationship with God. 
If you're going to encounter this God who speaks, there must be a relationship there. Verse 3, God's first words to Moses, which he is to then relay to the people, he, he talks about the relationship that they have with him, and it is by his doing that they have it. He says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He has initiated and accomplished a personal relationship, a covenant relationship with this nation. We see him talking in terms that he talks throughout the Bible about how he relates to his people. He will be their God. They will be his people, unique in all the earth. So they can receive the word of God from this speaking God because they have entered by faith into this personal relationship with him. And the same is true for us. Apart from a personal relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, you can read the Bible all you want to, and it will probably strike you no differently than reading the Greensboro phone book or the Sears catalog or the Declaration of Independence. But when you know this God in the context of a covenant relationship, and you rest on what He has done for us in the saving work of Jesus Christ, then we perceive in His Word a clear voice of love and grace. The Bible comes alive in our reading of it when we have that relationship with God. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel chapter 3, I believe it's verse 7, where it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, so the word of the Lord was not known to him. Oh, my friends, when you know the Lord, you become... You, you become more aware of how He speaks through His Word. So there has to be a relationship. Secondly, we also notice that there must be a commitment to obey what God says. Look at verse 8. The people say to Moses, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So, look back through the seven verses preceding that and make a list of all the things that the Lord had told them to do to that point. And the answer is, nothing. The Lord had not told them to do one thing until that point. And yet they were able to say, all that the Lord has said, we will do. That's because they were coming in with a heart attitude set on obedience to the Lord. That's what it means for Him to be Lord. And you say, I want to come and hear a word from the Lord. That means you're calling Him Lord. You're going to say yes to whatever it is that He's telling you to do. So whatever he says, when you open your Bible, you come to the moment of teaching, you come to the hour of preaching, you've committed in your heart that you will obey whatever it is that God will say. Here's a good spiritual discipline. You get up in the morning, you get your Bible, we get it out lunchtime or bedtime, whenever you spend time in the Bible, and I hope you do. Before you open it, you say, whatever the Lord says, I will do. We stand up to begin this time of preaching in the service. Say in your heart, whatever the Lord says, that I will do. There's no room when you call Him Lord to say, you know, like I say sometimes when people say, would you do me a favor? I say, would you tell me what it is first? Because I don't want to just be getting into something that I don't want to do here. Uh, There's no room for that when you call Him Lord. There's no room to say, well, let me hear it first and then let me think about it. Or better, I like it when people say, I'm praying about whether or not I should do this. You don't have to pray about doing what God told you to do. (laughs) Just do it. If He's Lord, the answer is yes, I will do it. Speak, Lord, whatever you say. 
I will do. So there's that commitment to obedience. Another issue of preparation concerns personal, spiritual preparation. Verses 10 through 15, we see God instructing the people to cleanse themselves in advance of this encounter. Now, the measures of purification that are described here are an outward demonstration of the inward preparation of their hearts. It would do them absolutely no good, for example, to merely just wash their clothes if they did not also wash their hearts. Clean clothes do not indicate clean hearts. But contrary to what any previous generation of believers ever told you about getting your Sunday best on to come to church, cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible, and God is not uh, checking off your wardrobe when you walk into the building. Okay, So you say, well... I got my Sunday best on. What's underneath that? Like in your heart. That's what God's looking at, okay? But the Israelites were symbolizing their internal preparations by washing their clothes, as if to say, just as we have washed our outer garments, we have washed ourselves internally in God's grace. So, for us today, there might be different ways of displaying those outward signs, But the inward reality has to maintain uh, the same uh, significance. Prior to encountering the God who speaks, we must search our hearts and lay them bare before the Lord, examine ourselves in light of His holiness, ask Him to cleanse us afresh and anew, that we might be fitted by His purifying grace to be an audience for His Word, whether that's in public or in private. Now, in the remainder of chapter 19, we see that preparation includes cultivating a heart of reverence for God. Now, we we must know when we come to hear this God speak that we're not coming for an academic exercise. We're not listening to a lecture on existential philosophy. We're engaging in an act of worship as we receive the Word of God, and we must tune our hearts accordingly. Uh, The Israelites... Uh, are told here that they have to acknowledge God's holiness and God's worthiness by remaining behind these boundary markers. And even the, the, the priest must be consecrated lest the Lord break out against them. We're talking about a healthy fear and a holy reverence for God's glory that must not devolve into the contempt of some illegitimate uh, sense of familiarity with Him. You know, yes, there is a danger, I will grant you, there is a danger of a cold formality in Christian worship that makes God seem far off and indifferent to us, like, like, like we're talking about someone who, who doesn't even know we're here. But I think today, the bigger danger is an increasing view of God as our buddy. And, uh, you know, like our encounter with Him is nothing more than like a fishing trip with our pals or a pajama party with our BFF. You know, like this is how we view spending time with God. Uh, I, I once heard someone say, when people come in to worship the Lord, I want them to feel like they're entering into God's living room. I think we've become quite cozy doing that. We put our feet up on the coffee table. I think rather we need to view ourselves as coming into God's throne room because we are encountering the holy, sovereign God of the universe as we come before Him in worship. And worship includes the hearing of His Word. 
I, I want you to notice, when, when people talk about church today and they talk about worship today, almost invariably they will use the word worship to describe the musical components of, uh, of, of that service. Now, we are obviously here in Exodus 19 and 20 in a context of worship, so point out to me all the songs that were sung in these two chapters. There are none. Worship is not music. It includes music, but it is not limited to music. And I love music. I, I, my life is lived out to a soundtrack. I'm all, I always have music on. I love music. But worship includes so much more than music. So don't ever say, well, at our church we spend 30 minutes in worship and then we have 30 minutes of preaching. Oh, that means you cut off worship before God spoke. Like, Worship includes all of this. Worship is all part of it. And the reading and hearing of His Word is an act of worship. So, chapter 19 teaches us the importance of preparation. If you want to encounter the God who speaks, there must be preparation. We learn by Israel's example how to do that. Now, we move into chapter 20 and we discover the second reality here. When we encounter the God who speaks, there is divine declaration. So first, if we would encounter the God who speaks, there must be careful preparation. When we encounter the God who speaks, there's divine declaration. When we come before God, we come before His Word, we must recognize that it is God who is speaking. Chapter 19, the Lord told Moses He wanted the people to hear that it was Him who was doing the talking, verse 9, he says, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. The the trust and the respect that they were to give to Moses was contingent upon their awareness that God was the one who spoke to Moses. Now, as chapter 20 begins, lest there be any confusion, we're told plainly in verse 1, then God spoke all these words. How many of these words did Moses speak? None. God spoke all these words. Okay? So, uh, we know from the rest of the Bible that we have the assurance every time we are reading the Bible, we are reading the Word of God. So, whatever passage we're reading, we can say this of, then God spoke all these words. That's why before and after the reading of the Scripture, in every service, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And after I say it, after I read it, I say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God doesn't have to speak. Thank Him for speaking. And He has spoken in the word. I preach in other churches and I do the same thing. And they say to me afterwards, why did you, why did you do that? Why did you say this is the word of the Lord? I say, because not everybody is aware of that. This is God's word. All right, so 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. The NIV nails it literally here. All Scripture is God-breathed, the Greek word theonoustos, the breath of God. The Bible does not merely contain some words that God said. The Bible as a whole is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God. So when we read it, when we hear it, When we study it, God is speaking to us from His Word, and we can expect that same kind of divine declaration that Israel receives at Sinai. So what kind of divine declaration is it? We notice, first of all, it is a revelation of Himself. Almost invariably in Scripture, when God speaks, He begins by disclosing something about who He is, and He does it here. 
He says in verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So, lest anyone question his authority to tell them uh, his, uh, what to do, how he wants them to live, command things that he wants them to obey, he makes it plain that he has already proven his authority by his nature. Uh, he is the one true God, Yahweh, and by his past act of redemption on their behalf, bringing them out of the slavery of Egypt. Walt Kaiser, one of my professors, said, All that Yahweh is, says, and does is embodied in this one affirmation, I am Yahweh, which he says in verse 2 there. Now, it's almost always the case in Scripture that imperatives, the things that God wants us to do or commands us to do, flow out of indicatives, the things that God says about who He is and what He's done for us. So, uh, he, he reveals himself indicative, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and now he moves into the imperative, he reveals himself, then he reveals his will, this is what I want you to do, he's saying. This is how he wants his people to live. In short, because he is holy, he wants his people to live holy lives before him and before the world. He says repeatedly, Old and New Testament alike, be holy for I am holy. So our lives are to be marked by the singular characteristic of obedience to the will of God that's been expressed in His practical commands for humanity. Now, if you were to number all of the commands and prohibitions of the Bible, it would take a very long time. In fact, uh, there is a number that gets tossed around. People will say, well, Jewish scholars say there's uh, this many commandments in the Bible. Uh, no one ever counted them. No one ever counted them. You know, you know how they came up with that number? Is they took the numerical equivalent to uh, every letter in the Hebrew word Torah, and they added it up and then added two more to it and said that's how many commandments are in the Bible. It's, it's, it's voodoo is what it is. No one ever added them up because it would be impossible to add them all up. What's a command and what's an implication and what's, a, what's an example? You know, so how do you actually numerically uh, make a list of all the commands? It would take, it would take forever. It would be impossible. And Jesus demonstrates in the Sermon on the Mount that there are implications drawn from each commandment that aren't even stated, right? So like, not just don't commit adultery, but don't, don't look at a person with lust in your heart because then you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. So there, there are implications beyond what is stated. But by God's matchless divine wisdom, His perfect will for humanity can be represented in ten sentences. Like, like that is remarkable. Like, what does God want us to do? Ten sentences. We call them the Ten Commandments. They're not called that here. They're called all these words. So uh, a lot of commentators refer to these as the Ten Words. Ten sentences, verses 3-17 through of chapter 20, that reflect God's perfect moral and theological guidance for how He intends our lives to be lived as we walk by faith in Him. Here is how He deserves for us to relate to Him and how He desires for us to relate to each other. Now you will remember from the Gospels that Jesus was asked on one occasion, which of the commandments is the greatest? Undoubtedly, somebody's trying to keep a checklist in their life and they're trying to figure out, well, look, I know I've broken about seven of these. I hope 
that whichever one's most important, I've already that I'm that I'm doing a pretty good job with. So so Jesus, let's grade on the curve here and tell me if I've only got to keep one, which is it? He didn't pick one of these. He picked a commandment from somewhere else and said, the greatest and foremost is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind and strength. And then he said, the second one is like it. To which I would have said, I didn't ask for two, I asked for one. But he says, the second one is like it, meaning I can't give you the first one without the second one. And the second one is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So the, the, the commandments he quotes are from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And then Jesus says, Matthew 22.40, after the, giving those two commandments, he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So really, it's like when you say the Ten Commandments, we, we, have, we have eight more than we need. Because really, there's only two. Love the Lord your God with your whole being. Love your neighbor above yourself. Now, how do you practically do that? That's where the Ten Commandments begin to show us how God wants us to live. In the first four commandments, God shows us His will for how we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Have no other gods before Him. No idols in your life, no matter, no matter what those idols might be, that compete for the allegiance that God alone deserves. He deserves first place in your affection and your devotion. So give Him no room for rivals in your life. He says don't fashion any visible or tangible representation of Him in order to worship it. Now some have said from that that we shouldn't have uh, artistic renderings of Jesus or theological symbols because uh, God forbids that in the second commandment. There's probably actually more merit to, to that suggestion than we like to acknowledge. Uh, but the primary point is not that you know you can't have a stained glass picture of Jesus, but if I come in here and find somebody like prostrate on the floor, like genuflecting before it, that's what's forbidden. Like you don't want to come in and find like pieces of fruit and a bowl of money sitting in front of the stained glass window like somebody's making an offering to this picture of Jesus. No, that that's what's clearly forbidden. Uh, the idea of these graven images. He goes on to say, by the way, the, the idea there with idolatry in terms of those graven images is this, that God is greater than anything that you could imagine or create to represent Him. So anytime you, you say, well, I'm going to draw a picture of my God or I'm going to make a statue of my God, you're, you're insulting that God. <laughs> Because he is so much greater than anything you could represent in your artwork uh, about him or in your imagination of him. Now, thirdly, he says, we must have a reverence for his name. And that is, don't take it in vain. To take God's name in vain means to use it in a meaningless way. Now, now you know, we grew up in the South, so, you know, we, we were told that means you don't say, like, GD. And you don't say the name of Jesus, like, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you know, like that's taking God's name in vain. And it is. But taking God's name in vain means so much more than that. Like I see it every day on Facebook. OMG. Like, did you hear that they're having a sale at the mall? OMG, which stands for, oh my God. 
Like, I think, let's just be honest, invoking like God's name over retail bargains is hollow. Like, watch some of these shows on HGTV when they take the homeowner away and they bring them back and they say, here's your new living room. First thing out of their mouth every time. I mean, not like, not like 51% of the time. I mean like 99.99% of the time. Oh my God, you know? And to which I want to say, like, are you like going to break out in a song of praise and worship now? Or is this just using God's name because it's just easier to exclaim that? So when we use God's name as an exclamation of surprise or shock, when we speak flippantly of the Lord, when we put words into God's mouth that He never said, when we say things about God that are not true, those are all taking His name in vain. And the fourth commandment indicates that we are to honor His Lordship over our lives by devoting one out of every seven days entirely to Him. We keep the Sabbath in obedience to His command and and an example that He's given to, to rest our bodies and concentrate our minds on Him alone. By the way, just throwing this out there, uh, chapter 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea that's all that in, that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Uh, so, so he says, you pattern your week after mine. I worked uh, six days creating the world and rested on the seventh. So the next time somebody says to you, well, you know, when the Bible says God created on the first day, second day, he's really meant thousands of years. You have to keep the same hermeneutic, and that means that you're still several thousand years away from having a day off. All right. <laughs> All right. So he says, Your work week reflects mine. Take a day out of every week and do nothing on it. Rest your body. I made you so I know what you need. You need rest. Rest your body and concentrate your mind on me on that day. God is saying, We honor God in our worship by giving him one seventh of our week and acknowledging that ultimately our labor is done for his glory. And we rest ourselves knowing that doing six or eight more hours of it is not going to make us any more right with Him. So we rest knowing that our relationship with Him is based on what He's done by His work, not what we do by ours. So we, don't have, we, we can take time off the clock for God. Now the remaining commandments. So, so those first four commandments. Is it, how are we supposed to love God first and foremost in our lives? There you go. Have no others. Make no visible representations of Him. Don't don't try to confine Him to what you can imagine Him to be. Keep the honor and and holiness of His name sacred and honor Him as Lord in how you schedule your life. Now, the remaining commandments, 5-10, through express the love that God wills for us to show to each other because we recognize His image in each other. So we honor our parents. Because we know that God places us in human families so that we can know what it means to live under authority and love and discipline. We, we don't murder because life is not ours to take. God gives life. God takes life away. It's not our job to take life away. God is the one who owns life. We don't commit adultery because marriage vows are sacred before God and reflect the intimacy of the union of God and His people. We don't steal because we believe that God is a good provider. And we believe He provides to every man that which he needs. So stealing takes away from somebody else what God's provided to them and betrays the provision that God has made for us. 
We don't bear false witness against each other or speak things about other people that are not true. Speak of them the same way that we wish to be spoken of. Stating only what is verifiably true and granting them every benefit of the doubt. And we're not to covet, whether it's our neighbor's house or spouse, station in life or possessions of life, anything, he says, that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness is a theft of the heart. It indicts God for not giving you what is best. And the antidote for coveting is contentment. Training our hearts to be satisfied in the joy of what God has given to us. Now, that's how you love your neighbor. It's not difficult to see that if we would all just live that way, just live that way, the world would be a better place, wouldn't it? God's commands are not restrictive. They're not punitive. He's not saying, look, I'm here to make sure that above all things, no one has any fun. No, I think... I think we're able to see when you look at the commandments He's given us, like if we would live this way, it would promote all of our common welfare and it would secure for us a peaceable society. This law is good and fair and just and right. It says all that needs to be said and it doesn't include anything that doesn't need to be said. It's God's will for humanity revealed by Him for our good and for His glory. And the accountability that such a law requires is not merely found in a court of law, but in the high court of God's justice. So we're, we're not merely answerable to civil authorities, but to the ultimate authority of a holy God who is a righteous judge. And because He loves us, He's revealed to us who He is and how He wills for us to live. He wants us to live lives of love for Himself and one another. Now, it shouldn't take long upon reading these words for us to realize that we have all violated God's will and broken His law. We have not lived this way. G. Campbell Morgan said this, Men are apt to think that if there be ten commandments of which they obey nine, such obedience will be put to their credit even though they break the tenth. That, however, is to misunderstand God's purpose of perfection for man and the consequent perfection of His law. Because the Ten Commandments of Sinai are not ten separate commandments having no reference to each other. They are ten sides of the one law of God. These commandments are so interrelated that if a man offended in one point, he breaks the unity of the law. So, we are justly condemned as guilty before the Lord. You say, well, which commandment have I broken? All of them. All of them. Every single one of us has broken all of them. We've broken the whole law. The Bible tells us in many ways, but among them, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory that is revealed and reflected in His perfect law. And that's very bad news. But that bad news prepares us to receive good news when we encounter the God who speaks. And that concerns the third reality here, after we encounter the God who speaks, there must be personal reaction. So we talked about careful preparation, divine declaration, now personal reaction. Verses 18 through 26 of chapter 20. Israel has just received the Word of God concerning how He wants them to live. And even as He's speaking, they're cut to the core of their being with the conviction that they're already guilty of violating the law. It would be like, I'm standing here drinking this glass of water. And some I just spilled it. And somebody walks in and says, "Whatever you do, don't drink that water." And I'm like this, I'm like, 
I wasn't drinking any water. What are you talking about? You know, like when the law is given, the people are immediately aware they've already broken it. They've already broken it. So what do you do? Well, they're trembling. They stand at a distance. They say to Moses, look, we can't take anymore. You, you speak to us. You tell us what you want, but don't let God speak to us because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. And the Holy Spirit is convicting them to the core of their being, just as He does with us, that we are guilty before God. You want to know why you walk around feeling guilty all the time? Because you are. Like, there are real consequences to our actions. And to tremble under such conviction is a fitting response to what God has spoken. But notice that after conviction comes consolation. Verse 20, Moses says to them, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Did you not hear what God just said? What do you mean, don't be afraid? Don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you. God hasn't come to... If God wanted to destroy you, He wouldn't have spoken. He could have just destroyed you for breaking His law and never told you what it was. He hasn't come to destroy you. He's come to test you in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. In other words, let the sense of your guilt before God drive you to Him, not away from Him. The worst thing you can do when you know you've blown it before the Lord is to run away from Him because He's the only one that can help you. So let that guilt and that conviction and the awareness of that sin drive you to the Lord in His grace, not away from Him. If it, if it drives you away from Him, then you have no hope. You drive it, it drives you to Him so that He can deal with your sin and deliver you from it that you might live free of sin's bondage and have victory over it. How can such consolation be experienced by guilty sinners who are rightly condemned before a holy God? There's another reaction here. We saw conviction. We saw consolation. We see in verses 21-25, through 25, restoration. The Lord gives the people instructions on how they can return to Him. In the very giving of the law that condemns, there's the acknowledgement of human inability to keep that law and the gracious provision of restoration of fellowship with God when we break it. So He reminds them, He alone is God. There's to be no other. He tells them He will welcome them if they return to Him. But they can't just decide to come back any old way, their own way, some way that they think up. They have to come back by God's prescribed way and no other. He says, you shall make an altar. Don't make an idol. Make an altar. And on the altar, bring the offerings that make for peace with God. And if they do this, God says, whenever you do this, I will come to you and I will bless you. But the altar is not the product of their own hands. He says, don't, don't put your tools to work on stones. You'll just profane it. Use what I've given you and come to me that way. Friends, for centuries, Israel communed with God in this way. Bring offerings and sacrifices before Him on the altar to make peace for their sin. But in the fullness of time, God would provide even more perfectly for His people. He would come to us and bless us with His presence in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus became for us both the altar and the offering by which we are reconciled to God, even the high priest who makes the offer. In Christ, our sins are placed and punished. He is the only one who ever loved God and neighbor perfectly. And in His death, He is treated under God's wrath as though He is as guilty as we are 
of breaking the law so that He becomes our substitute in judgment. So that our sin can be forgiven because it's been paid for in Christ and in Christ alone. And God is able to reckon to us the righteousness that Christ's perfect obedience demonstrates. And God vows to treat us as though we had kept His whole law because He views us as being clothed in the righteousness of His Son. He is the God who speaks and He invites us to come and encounter Him. And He has spoken to us in many portions and in many ways over the passage of time. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, He has spoken to us in His Son. John reminds us in chapter 1 of his Gospel that the Word of God has become flesh and dwelt among us. So prepare yourself to encounter this speaking, saving God. Listen to the divine declaration of who He is and what He wills for your life. And respond to Him and come to Him by His way of approach under the conviction of our guilt and the consolation He offers us through the restoration that's secured through Christ's atoning death on the cross. Come and encounter the God who speaks. Let's pray.